My name is Prentice. I'm the pastor here at Bethany West Seattle, and I'm so glad to see everybody here uh, this morning. Uh, No matter what kind of week, uh, days, months that you have had, uh, I just know and I believe that even today, even on a Sunday, even though it's something that we just do on Sundays, that God has something for you, that God wants to speak to you, and uh, regardless of what's been happening in your life, and, and this, has, this really has nothing to do with the sermon, but I have to say it was a, it was a rough week for me. Uh, I had a really good friend where uh, his wife just passed away uh, with two kids just a few days ago. I got a call, two calls, just last night where a friend where his brother shot himself, where the other one where his little baby was sick and had to get taken to the ER, and, and, and I just want to say that I mean, God, God is for you. Whether you hear, you're here and you believe that, whether, whether you even believe in God at all, I just want you to know that God is so for you. God loves you, and God wants to walk alongside of you, and so as I was worshiping today, I couldn't help but just to sense this overwhelming sense of the Spirit, and I was just like bawling. Because I know that God is in so in love with each and every one of us. And I just want us to believe that as we go on, not only today, but every day, that this isn't just the emotion that we do, but it's something that we do because we want to meet with our creator who's got such big things and plans and, and all that for us. So believe that with me, please. We continue on this series called uh, Summer Shorts where we're talking about little books in the Bible uh, and what that has to say to us in our lives today. And oftentimes, these are books that we, uh, that we like to skip, uh, that we don't know much about, like Haggai and Jude and, uh, and Habakkuk. And, and for a lot of us, we may have heard about that, and, and we may have seen it as we looked at the table of contents, but we've never really read it. And so this summer, we're going to be talking about that. And today, we're talking about the book of Amos, the prophet Amos. Uh, and I love this message of Amos because uh, it's a powerful message, and it's a message that even convicted me as I was reading and studying it. And it's something that, may, that will make all of us here kind of clench up a little bit because he talks about money. It's a very uncomfortable topic for a lot of us. But Amos understands that there is power behind money and wealth. So much power that has the ability to bless others around us in our lives, in our world, in our community, to our neighbors. Money and wealth has so much power, it has an opportunity to give life to people. Uh, on the other side, wealth and money also has uh, this opportunity to dis- destroy not only ourselves, but the people around us as well. And, and the unfortunate truth of all of this is that Jesus, even in his own words, say that we are actually susceptible not to the former of blessing and loving and giving away, but more susceptible to actually the latter, where it destroys our souls and it becomes more of a liability than a blessing. And so our text, although that we're going we're gonna to kind of scan all of Amos, uh, I'm going to say that the primary verses come from Amos chapter 5, 
verse 21 to 24, and I'm, let me just read this out loud. And, and some of you guys have maybe heard these words before. Uh, and it says this, I hate and despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and, and grain offerings, I will not accept them. In the offering of well-being of your fattened animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. And verse 24 says this, and listen carefully. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Let me read that again because we're going to get back to this. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Will you pray with me? God, thank you so much for your provisions, for your gifts, for your blessings. May we learn what it looks like to be a good steward, and may we be careful of the power of what this money and wealth has on us. God, may we use it to bless and to love not only ourselves and our families, but those around us. God, teach us more about your heart. In your name we pray, amen. I don't know about you, but money has... Uh, this opportunity to do weird things to us, right? I bet you if I asked you uh, to tell me a story, what kind of crazy things have you done for money? A lot of you guys would have a story to share. I know that I would. And I ran across this blog. Uh, And this blog had just a list of people submitting the answer to that question. What are some of the craziest things you've ever done for some money? And some of the answers that people submitted were something like this. One person says, uh, I, ate, ew, I ate a used Band-Aid from the floor of the computer science room for $22. My sister used to pay me 10 cents an hour to beat her personal footrest as she watched TV. 10 cents an hour? is a steal. I licked the floor of my school bus for $20. Not just a taste, but a long drag on the bus floor. Uh, I ate a mixing spoon full of bacon grease for $15 and a $5 coupon to Best Buy. Uh, my <laughs> this is good. My brother would pay me five cents. Man, these guys have low, low wages. My brother would pay me five cents a night to lay in his bed for 20 minutes before he got in so it would be nice and warm for him. (laughs) And lastly, uh, somebody said this, for money, the craziest thing I've ever done, he said, was I sold my soul in 10-hour increments inside of a cubicle for for 15 years. Crazy things we do for money. And as funny and as disgusting as these examples may be, money does drive us to do some crazy things, all of us, me and you included. In fact, there was a Harvard Business article uh, that said something like, uh, that didn't experiment on this and, and, and the effect that money and wealth has on our brain. And this research uh, showed this, that there were MRI scans done to a dozen people uh, playing a game. Where at the end of this game that they would receive money 
as a reward. And so they did MRI scans right after they played this game. And what they found out is that they compared these MRI scans with the same scans uh, of people that were addicts that were high on cocaine. And the results were startling, says researchers, and it indicated that each had such similar heightened uh, brain activity that the scans on both sides looked almost identical. Somebody that was high on cocaine and somebody that was high off of winning money, the brain scans indicated that the, the activities looked almost identical. And one of the researchers that did this researcher that did this research published many works on the neuroscience of financial decisions and he said this regarding that experiment. He says, "We very very quickly found out that nothing had an effect on people like money. Not naked bodies, not corpse, it got people riled up and like food provides motivation for dogs, money provides it for people. And this is something that humanity has been dealing with ever since the beginning of time. And it's no accident that verse after verse, not only throughout the whole Bible, but all the words and much of the words that Jesus talks about deals directly with money and how money and wealth and resources and material possession has an effect on our lives and our souls. And unfortunately, it's not always good stuff, although again, we'll talk about this, money in itself and wealth in itself is not evil in itself, but it's the love of that becomes a root of evil. Poor decisions, apathy, discontentment, and it's no wonder Jesus talks so much about this very issue. And it's so funny how us as a church, we start bickering about all these secondary issues. We start fighting about predestination, Arminianism, and theology, and doctrine, and, and this, and that, and sexual. So many different things. And yet Jesus is saying, well, wait a minute. As you, the church, are bickering about a thousand different things that I barely even talked about, if at all, you're ignoring the hundreds of things that I've talked about in the scripture. 16 of roughly, depending on how you count it, 16 of 38 parables of Jesus were concerned with how to handle money and wealth. In the gospels alone, one out of 10 verses, 288 in all, deal directly with the subject of money. The Bible offers 500 verses on prayer, deals less than 500 verses on, on faith, but more than 2,000, 2,000 verses on money and possessions. And the central theme of Amos is the fact that he's confronting the many ways uh, that God's people in his time, the people that he was prophesying, speaking to, have failed, absolutely failed in the way that they have stewarded the money and resources that God has graciously blessed them with. And ultimately what we find out is that it was beyond just poor financial management, but it was indicative to how their wealth destroyed their hearts. 
And, and we'll talk about and we'll see this, that, uh, that wealth and money in the in this time of Amos destroyed their hearts in several different ways. But there's three different ways that we'll look at today is that money destroyed contentment. Money destroyed contentment. Money destroyed empathy. And money destroyed their decision-making, their judgment. And so first we talk about money and how it destroys contentment. In Amos chapter 3, verse 14, it says, On that day I will punish Israel for for her sins. I will destroy the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. Now, in earlier in Amos chapter 1, God is speaking to, through Amos, to God's people. And he names all these surrounding cities in Israel, uh, in Tyre, in uh, Gaza, in uh, Sodom, in all these different areas. There's a rebuke against them in the way that they've handled their money, their greed, their neglect of the poor and the marginalized. And and you can almost kind of see in the background Israel uh, saying, yeah, go get them. Yeah, they messed up. How dare them? And and Amos goes on and on. You, you messed up over here. Oh, you neighbor over here, you messed up. And and Israel's sitting here kind of in the background saying, yes, yes, kind of egging them on. And finally Amos goes to Israel and says, hey, wait a minute. You're not off the hook either. As a matter of fact, out of all these cities and all these neighboring areas, you are actually the most guiltiest, and God is going to do something about that unless you change, unless you repent. Remember last week we talked about this idea of repentance, that it ends up being this scary and, and fearful word that's been robbed, but really repentance is this Hebrew word, shuv, uh, which means just to return, and so Amos' message to Israel is, is unless you return, turn back to God, <laughs> there's going to be consequences. There's going to be consequences by, by the way you deal with money and wealth, the very thing that I've given you. And again, it's important that we understand uh, the context uh, of what's happening uh, in the context of what's happening is this, is we realize, or what we saw last week, is that uh, when King Solomon died uh, around 930 B.C., there was a civil war in Israel. Uh, and, the Is- and Israel got split up into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom is a kingdom of, of Israel. The southern kingdom was a kingdom of Judah. Uh, and under those two kingdoms, there were two kings that came in. Uh, for Judah, is King Uzziah. And in the north, um, it was King Jeroboam. And and there were both kind of evil kings that that we don't have time to go through uh, today. Uh, But we understand that through their evilness, through their greed and their desire for power, both of those nations actually ended up... uh, uh, in, in prosperity for about 50 years. So the nation of Israel have not experienced prosperity uh, much that time and, and even in the future to come. But in about 50 years around when King Solomon died, for about 50 years they did receive a little bit of prosperity. The economy was booming. There was trade. Uh, people had power. They had military. Uh, and things were going really, really well for the kingdom of Israel. And it's so well that, again, they had the money, they had the resources, things were going so well that it started doing something to their souls. 
And 50 years later, when they were going through the civil war, even before that, when, you know, there were different nations, Assyria and Babylon, when they all came in and invaded, of course, at that time, they needed God so much. God, where are you? God, I need you. God, help us. We can't do this alone. We're desperate. We need something. We don't have enough. And then all of a sudden, the king comes in, makes things a little bit better. They get a little bit more comfortable, and all of a sudden, God's gone. Oh, I'm good, God. Oh, I, I don't need anything anymore. I'm content. I'm happy. And, and this is where Amos comes in and says, well, actually, this is a time more than ever or just as much as the last time you were invaded where you need God. So don't be mistaken. You are not at a good place right now. And as Joel was a prophet to Judah, like we talked about last week, Amos was a prophet to Israel, the northern kingdom. And again, much of the prophet's job was to deliver really, really bad and unpopular news. And again, Amos' message was, there's a warning. God is going to uh, do something due to, your, uh, due to your usage of your wealth, which is not in the way that God wants us to do. Just like then, just like today, we realize that money causes us, money caused them in that time to do really ugly things, completely antithetical to God's hope for them. And again, it's not, don't hear me wrong here. Money and wealth and, and resources in itself is not a bad thing. It's not. The Bible says that it's not, it's not money in itself, but it's the love of money that causes evil. And even throughout the Gospels, even throughout, there's this message saying that money, yes, money in itself is not a bad thing, but let's, don't kid yourself, the more money you have, the more burden it becomes. And I know if you're anything like me, you're like, man, that's one burden I'm willing to take on, all right? If we all have our own burdens, that's the one I choose. And a lot of them, that's what they did. And Amos is saying, well, you're messing up right now. And again, in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 14, it says, On that day, let me read this again, I will punish Israel for her sins. I will destroy the altars of Bethel. They got so comfortable during this time in Israel through the king of Jeroboam that God's own people, uh, as they were living in peace and prosperity, they realized that that wasn't enough. They were so comfortable. They felt like they had it all. Yet, oftentimes, you and I both know when we feel like we have it all, the next thing we think is, well, we need more. Just a little bit more and then I'll be happy. Just a little bit more and I'll be content. And what we realize is that's not true. And the people that Amos was speaking to in Israel were thinking the same exact thing, that they needed just a little bit more. And so God's own people went to Bethel. Uh, this is kind of a metropolitan area. This is the area that historically they believe where Abraham and Jacob met with God. Bethel. In Hebrew, uh, the word Beit means house. El means God. It's the house of God. This is where, firstly, the Ark of the Covenant was throughout the uh, Exodus. This was a very special place. Bethel was a place where they believed that we encountered Yahweh, that they would encounter the Most High, they would encounter God. Yet, during this time, at that very location, 
Israel, the people of God, the Yahweh's people, uh, set up altars for cultic gods in that very spot. It, it was the cult of Baal. It was ancient Near Eastern cults that they invited in and allowed to have take place in Bethel, the place that they encountered Yahweh, the sacred and holy ground. God's own people allowed the worship of Baal to take place in Bethel. Why? Because, well, first of all, Baal was known as the god of fertility, the god of birth, the god of giving, of beginning. And so the people of Israel said, you know what? What I have right now, even though God has blessed us, it's not enough. It's so much not enough that we would go as far as allow cultic gods, the God of Baal, to come here, set up shop, so we can now not only worship Yahweh, but now we're going to worship Baal because we want more and more and more. Not only more children, but more crops, more wealth, more resources. The God of fertility of Baal can provide all of that. And obviously that made God very, very angry. On that day, I will punish Israel her sins. I will destroy the altars of Bethel, altars, all the altars that they set up to worship the God of fertility. And the horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. And not only that, in verse 15 it says, I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. See, these people, they just needed more. They were so greedy that the blessing, the things that they had were not enough, which is ironic because just 50 years later, they were being desolated. They were being punished. They were being uh, overcome with enemies. They were being hurt. They were being uh, exiled. All these horrible things were happening. And yet now, finally, God brings them to a better place, much better than they have had, and now they need more. So they stray away from God because they're discontent. See, the, the more that they had, the more it kind of diminished their soul. It destroyed their contentment. Now I need more Baal. Maybe Baal will give me more. And, and then God says, well, I'm going to destroy all your homes. And just like today, some of us, we have summer homes. Some of us, uh, and we have winter homes. And we have homes over here. And we have homes over there. Uh, which are great. Uh, I've been a beneficiary of people having several homes uh, where I can go and with people and have retreats, and, and, it's, a, and it's a blessing when used correctly. But in verse 15, uh, God says, I'm going to destroy all of that. I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. And the house is made with ivory, which is an indication of, of financial wealth. So again, like today, having multiple places of residence was a clear indication of wealth, not only today, uh, but for them as well. See, they needed different types of homes. They needed more things. And I really believe they fell into this myth, and oftentimes it's this myth that we also fall into, and it's this myth of if only. This if only myth, if only had a, if I had a bigger savings account, then I would be content. If only I had a bigger home or more homes or a home over there or a cabin over here, then I would be content. If only I had a nicer car, a 
faster car, a more beautiful car, then I will be content. If only I had the latest gadgets uh, and toys and technology, then I will be content. I want this, I want that, it's not enough. But once I get that, it's this myth of if only, if only I got that, then I would have enough. For example, I'll be honest, I am a very big tech junkie. I love technology, I love toys. And I remember when the iPhone 6 came out, and I realized I needed, not wanted, I needed the iPhone 6. Anybody else? Okay, yeah, you guys are liars. When you saw, when you saw the ads, when you saw the commercials, you said, I need that phone. And so what did I do? I got the iPhone. And I loved it, you know, uh, you know the photos and, and all the functions and the, and, the, and the speed. You know, people talk about, oh, it's more powerful more, and more fast. We don't actually notice that, I don't think. But because someone told us it was, uh, I believe it and therefore I want it. I don't know if you guys, and then, and then iPhone 7 comes out suddenly and this very phone that I love so much, it works perfectly well. I see another commercial for iPhone 7, and all of a sudden my iPhone 6 is just ancient and archaic, and, and it barely works, right? You guys ever fall into that? Like, oh, now that there's something newer and better, the thing that you have now is not enough. Because see, at first when I got the iPhone 6, I was like, this is perfect. I can have this phone forever. This is great. It does everything I need and more. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden something newer comes out. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. I'm not content. I actually need that. And, and I put it together side by side. It actually looks identical. I couldn't tell the difference. Uh, but there was this function. We're on the iPhone 7. I, don't know if, I actually still don't have it. But, but if you have the iPhone 7, there's this function where you take a picture and you hold it down. And the picture moves for about two seconds. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? You take a picture, you hold it down, and the actual photo moves for a couple seconds. Whoa, I need that. Are you kidding me? I need my picture to move around for a couple seconds. My phone is no longer worthy. I need that iPhone 7. And for a lot of us, that's the kind of way that we function. That's the way that we work. We have something, and yet there's always this myth. If only I had something more. And I remember there was this, uh, I think it was a Conan show, or, or it was, I forgot one of those late night shows, when the iPhone 7 came out, and they went on the street to interview people. What do you think about the new iPhone 7? And actually, it hadn't come out yet. And they're like, are you excited? You know, it was on the street. And people are like, yeah, I'm super excited for the iPhone 7. Are you going to get it? Yes, I'm going to get it. And so they played this trick where they said, well, let me see your iPhone 6. And then they would say, well, here's the iPhone 7. And they talked it up, but it was actually another iPhone 6. It was the very same phone. And said, well, check this out. It's faster. It's quicker. It's got this function. And then the majority of the people, when they saw it, they're like, yeah, whoa. This is way better than this phone, only because it was newer, it was shinier, and they fell into this myth of, of if only. 
And, and there's a side note here that this isn't just for when it comes to wealth, although that's what we're talking about today. It's everything in life. We oftentimes fall in this myth of if only, if only I was in a relationship, if only if I was married, if only if I was single, if only if I had kids, or if only if I didn't have kids, uh, if only if I had kids that behaved, all these things. And no, the answer is no. Unless you as created are connected with the creator, we will never receive satisfaction and contentment. Never. And if you find your security in anything else other than God, it's a false sense of security. And I love what Paul says in the New Testament, in Philippians. He says, I know what I have to have a bunch. I know what it, I know what it feels like to have plenty. I know what it feels like to be fed. I know what it feels like to have it all. I also know what it feels like to be hungry. I know what it feels like uh, to be in want. And yet, I've learned the secret to be content. And it is this, to find my strength in God. That's the secret of contentment. It's to find connection and intimacy and deep rootedness and relationship with God. That alone, nothing else, can bring us true contentment. Because when we lean on material possessions and money and wealth, it's never enough. We know that it's never enough. We fall in this myth of if only I had this and that, then I'll have enough. And that's simply not true. We have to be connected with God. What Plato and Aristotle would call the, the first mover, the unmoved mover, the origination of love, of connection, of wholeness. That's who we need to get connected back to. Anything outside of that, it's a false sense of security. And the question is, what, where do you find your identity? Where do you find your security? Where do you find your contentment? Maybe it is money. Maybe it's upward mobility. Maybe it's your salary. Maybe it's your savings account, your investment, whatever it is. And no, those aren't necessarily inherently bad things. Matter of fact, God bless you. And may you be good stewards of it. And may you honor God with it and honor yourself and honor your family with it. But know this, if that is what you cling to for life, it's going to disappoint. It's going to absolutely disappoint. And second is this. Money can destroy empathy. In Amos 6, chapter 1, it says this. Alas, for those who are at ease in Zion and for those who feel secure in Mount Samaria, the notables of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel resorts. Ease. For those of you that are feeling so comfortable, for those of you that are feeling secure. And then Amos chapter 4 says this, hear this word, <laughs> hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. Talk about boldness in chapter 4. If, I, if, you, don't, if you didn't catch what's going on, here's what's happening. Amos just call these group of women, Israel women, cows of Bashan. That's quite offensive, right? Now, Bashan was a well-known fertile plain with lush pasture for cows to graze. Thus, it was an area where people would use to fatten their cows. 
So there's big fat cows in Bashan. And so Amos is saying, you women are like cows in Bashan. See how offensive that was? But his point was this. He says, he says the point was this. Well, and then he says, uh, who tell your husbands to bring you something to drink. And so his point was this. While, you're, while you sit there and you sip on your wine and you eat your food, you're neglecting the people around you. You're neglecting especially the poor, the homeless, the marginalized. And he says that's wrong. And again, we'll go by chapter, chapter 6. He says, well, men, you're not off the hook either. He says, woe to you who are complacent in Zion to, and to you who feel secure in Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. So he exhorts both men and women. See, we're like that sometimes. We get so distracted by our own needs and wants because we're so discontent. Well, we want to achieve contentment. We want to be happy. We want enough. We get so busy that we become apathetic to everything else. We stop caring about others. I mean, the reality is you may not say that out loud, but, it, but it's true. And I know that for myself. And not only do we stop caring just for the people around us, but for the people that God wants us to care about, the poor, the homeless, the marginalized, the widows, the orphans. Because we're so stuck on this, if only I had more. But see, we do a good job of showing up to church on Sundays. We do a good job of uh, saying all the right things, even doing all the right things. We do a good job of going on social media and clicking like on, on everything that's social justice oriented. We even post really nice and sweet comments so people know that you're really justice oriented. You care about the things that God cares about. And I don't doubt you. I'm not saying you're lying. That's true. But God is saying there's more that we have to do. There's more. If we think beyond ourselves and to look around, who's in need? Who's in pain? Who's the oppressed? Where are the homeless? Where are the hungry? Where are the thirsty? And do you have something to offer them? And, and I would say, all of us here, we do. See, the ironic thing is wealth can kill generosity. And that's so ironic because wealth is the very thing you need to be generous. Again, is the very thing that kills it. We become so confined in our old lives that we become clueless on not only what's happened in this world, but our neighborhood and even our actual next door neighbors. I remember when I was a youth pastor in Laguna Beach, California, Laguna Presbyterian Church. I love that church. It's a great church. And I remember I was talking to an eighth grader, and he asked me what my favorite restaurant was. I said, oh, my favorite restaurant is down the street. I mean, it was this, like, burrito place. Like, I love that place. I go there, like, twice a week, maybe three times a week. What's your favorite? This is a little eighth grader. And he says, oh, I forgot the name of it, Prentice, but it had like a glass, it's got like a glass window wall and, and you know, kind of it faced the water because I was on the, we lived on the ocean. And so I said, oh, is it, is it this one on, you know, California Street or is it this one? No. Was it this one, uh, you know, next to Safeway or that grocery store? It's like, no. And we went on for like 15, 20 minutes trying to figure out what restaurant he was talking about. And, and he says, oh, you know what? It's not around here. It's in Cabo. 
Cabo, like in Mexico. He's like, yeah, have you ever been there? Like, oh, yeah, we go all the time. Like, that's my favorite restaurant. We should go there sometime. And, and this is no fault of his own, but in his reality, that was normal. That was just a restaurant that everyone went to in Cabo, Mexico. And, and, and I said, oh, buddy, man, I, A, I've never been there. Uh, and B, not, that, that's not normal. Like, good for you that you guys get to go to Mexico, you know, several times a year. That's a blessing. I'm glad you have fun. But let me just tell you, that, that's not a normal life for people. And, and, and the way he was describing his favorite restaurant, it was like nonchalant. It was like, oh, yeah, I go to McDonald's over here, Jack in the Box over here, and this restaurant in Cabo over there. No big deal. And I don't fault him for that because that's what he's learned. That's the environment that he's been in. And we're no different. We become so isolated in our own world of our own wants. And it says we become so secure and so comfortable that we become apathetic to the people and those around us. Hmm. The funny thing is to know what you care about to know what I care, to know what we ourselves, that we care about. It's very practical. You want to know what you care about? Check your bank account. It's a hard statement to say. It's bold. It's, it's offensive. But if I want to know what I truly care about, I'm going to check my bank account. Looking into somebody's checking, checking account is like looking into someone's heart. They'll tell you what you care about. Money can destroy, can give life, but it can destroy. It can destroy our contentment. It can destroy our empathy towards others. And third, money can destroy our judgment. In Amos chapter five, verse 11 through 12, it says to the Israelites, you levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built, uh, built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink of their wine. For I know how many of your offenses and how great your sins. There are, no, uh, there are those you oppress the innocents and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. He says, I know what you've done. He says, you tax people unfairly, you rich. You're rich people, you, you take advantage of the poor, you exploit them, you take their money. And, and uh, the poor is getting poorer in this time, the rich are, are getting richer, and Amos is saying, that is just, that is wrong. And, and let me just tell you right now, I'm not saying a political statement, this isn't part, a partisan statement, uh, but people, especially during this time, were so hungry for money and so hungry for power uh, that they would use their monetary gains, their wealth, to exploit and to take advantage. And we see this even today with the bank industry, with people in office, office uh, uh, human trafficking and, and dealing drugs and all these things in order for their financial gain. Money makes us do crazy things. And for those of us, even those of us that claim to have faith and believe in Jesus, it even makes us even question and compromise our faith. Am I doing the right things? It kind of jeopardizes our morality. I remember when I was in college in my fraternity, my first year, there was an upperclassman who was a natural entrepreneur. I mean, he loved to, to make money. And, and the way he did 
his business was this. He would go to the underclassmen, and I don't know how he pulled it off, but he would say, uh, during midterms and during finals, uh, tell me what class that test is in, and what I'll do is I'll figure out how to get to that class, that test, before you. I'll go there, I'll grab the test, and I'll bring it back so you can study it before you go to class. Now, that was a natural entrepreneur. And I wish I can say that I never took advantage of his business, but there was maybe once, maybe twice that I did, and I felt terrible for it. But oftentimes, the point is this. The point is that money makes us do crazy things, even compromise our faith. It's in Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 25. There's a rich man that asks, how do I experience the kingdom of God? I've kept all the commandments, Jesus. Uh, Jesus. I've done everything you asked me to. I haven't killed, I haven't lied, I haven't stolen, I haven't cheated, I haven't done anything. How do I inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, great, you did all those things, awesome, kudos to you. Now sell everything you have and give the money to the poor. And the guy walks away and says, I can't do it. And then he continues, Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter into the kingdom of God. Money's a powerful thing. And I'm going to invite the worship team back up here. And, and this is something that I really want to do uh, an inventory of. And in Leviticus, this holiness code, it says, if you want to be a people of God, here's what you need to do. For those of you that have a field, he says, don't plow, don't plow it to the very edge. Save that edge for the homeless, for the poor, the people that are truly in need. Why? Because what you have does not belong to you. Because what you have, what you have, what I have, what we have, does not belong to us. And until we actually grasp and believe and embrace that, we'll always have an unhealthy understanding of money and wealth. What you have does not belong to you. It's weird to say that, weird to believe that, but it doesn't. We are stewards. The definition of stewardship is taking care of something that doesn't belong to us on behalf of somebody else. And that's what it means when you get paid your salary, when you get gifts, when you have your resources. It doesn't belong to you. It's something that God wants you to take care of. And when you hoard it with your selfish ambition, and that's for me too, when we use it for only our gains, when we only think about wanting more and needing more, we're not actually taking good care of what God has entrusted us with. Because true care, God almost tells us how to use it, and it's not only to bless ourselves and our family. Yes, that's true, but it's also to give it away. To give it away because it does not belong. It belongs to them. God, God says, don't plow to the edge of your fields because that does not belong to you. It belongs to them. Part of what we have belongs to the poor, to the marginalized, to the homeless, to the people in need. It does. It's a hard message. 
It's a very, very hard message. And so I just want us to take an inventory of, of literally an inventory of what you have. Whether it's your paycheck, whether it's resources, whether it's even time or talents. What are you doing with that? And if part of that answer does not include, I give it away, I want to ask you to kind of check your soul. Because really joy and contentment, it actually, it's, it's ironic. It doesn't come from, you know, it says cliche. It's not about, it's not about giving, it's about, or it's not about receiving, it's about giving. But really that is the gospel. True contentment, true joy, true, true, joy, true satisfaction comes from actually giving it away. It's the way we were wired. It's what we go against, but it's the way we're wired. And so right now, just all of us, just close our eyes. Maybe the prayer is this, God, help me to see what, what I have. Maybe some of us here, we have this, if only, God, if only I had more. Maybe today you stop that. And you see what the things that God has already given to you. Or maybe now you're saying, God, I know what I have. Now open my eyes to see what I can do with this expansion, your kingdom here on earth. How do I give this away? How do I literally give this away? Because that's where I find freedom. Maybe some of us, we've become a slave to money. Money, de money determines what we do, drives us to make our decisions. And in all three of these, it's time to repent, to shoot, to return to God. Help me, God, help me. This powerful thing that I've been given, that I've been entrusted to, help me to honor you with it. What does that look like? Let's just spend some, some time in prayer. Maybe it's, we don't do this enough. Maybe it's a time of confession and a time of repentance. God, forgive me ways I've failed and change my heart. Continue in, in praise as long as you need and when you're ready, join us in worship.